0: You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk. Welcome to Parliament Matters, the podcast about the institution at the heart of our democracy, Parliament itself. I'm Ruth Fox. And
1: I'm Mark Darcy.
0: Coming up... As bad as anything seen during the Brexit years, the House of Commons made a hash of debating one of the great humanitarian tragedies of our time, Gaza.
1: The Speaker apologises to MPs for his handling of the debate, but will that be enough to save him?
0: A constitutional fad or useful addition to making public policy? Are citizens' assemblies worth having?
1: But first, (laughs) Ruth... It's part of the charm of the House of Commons, I suppose. You look at the agenda and you think, hmm, this looks like a bit of a quiet week. Then Bedlam (laughs) breaks loose. And so it was on Wednesday when Mr Speaker Hoyle's decision to allow Labour to put down an amendment to an SNP motion on Gaza caused absolute havoc in the Chamber of the Commons. The Speaker ended up apologising to MPs. and I can't recall the Speaker ever having to apologise to MPs for a ruling that had gone wrong no. before. Not John Burko, not even Michael Martin, certainly not Betty Boothroyd. So there was a really unprecedented, utterly remarkable scene where when MPs were supposed to be debating what, as you say, was one of the great humanitarian tragedies of our time, the tens of thousands of lives being lost in Gaza... What you actually got was MPs getting incredibly angry about a procedural detail that will simply be lost on most of the people who are watching that debate. And I suspect, incidentally, quite a lot of people were watching that debate on television and online.
0: Yeah, I mean, my sense was exactly that. It was interesting. I was stood at the train station uh, platform coming home on Wednesday evening and two youngish women were stood... Debating, discussing exactly what on earth had gone on and what had happened and and why. And basically were pretty damning about the scenes that they were witnessing.
1: Yeah, it was a a huge outbreak of, of party game playing alongside this incredibly serious issue. And no one pretends, I think, for an instant that the verdict of the House of Commons on what's going on in Gaza is going to have the slightest influence on events in the Middle East. It's not as if Benjamin Netanyahu and his cabinet or the leadership of Hamas were waiting with bated breath to discover the verdict of the House of Commons here. But it mattered in the sense that these awful events have been unfolding for weeks and weeks now and the House of Commons really needed to take a view. And so the House of Commons tried to take a view and ended up talking about itself.
0: Yeah, and that I think that sort of sums up the problem. When you get these difficult issues the House of Commons processes and procedures don't really allow it to come to a consensual view. It's stuck in this binary position. It's sort of one side or the other. And where you've got multiple options or multiple choices, multiple sort of forms of phrasing, there isn't a process and a procedure that enables the House to reach a consensual view. And consequently, you get this partisanship and you mix that then with the unhappiness of minor parties, in this case, the third party, the SNP, really, really angry about feeling that their opportunity in the House of Commons this week to take the initiative, set out a case and have the House vote on it, it was robbed from them. Well, indeed, it's, a, you see
1: it. it's it's not as if the smaller parties in the House of Commons get much of a slice of the procedural pie anyway. They get, I think, the SNP gets about three deb- three, days. Three, three days of debates a year, and uh, a they session. have to, a, a session. I beg your pardon, <laughs> and, and and that can be more than a year, of course. And they have to sort of cede some of that to the the smaller still parties, the Lib Dems and the DUP and so forth. So having the big boys muscle in on some of their very scarce time is pretty infuriating for them, just on general principles and on. This issue, when they had this carefully designed political trap, which would have caused the Labour Party to go into absolute contortions, possibly seen front bench resignations, all sorts of other stuff, to have that dashed from their lips was something that they are absolutely furious about. The fury of the SNP leader Stephen Flynn over the Speaker's ruling was something to see. But I suppose we'd better go back to the beginning, really, and, mm-hmm. and unpick what had happened exactly here. First of all, this was an SNP Opposition Day debate. They get to choose the subject, they get to choose the motion. Some days they will actually have two debates in the allotted time, and they'll be quite short debates. This time it was going to be two, but it went down to one because of time-wasting tactics that had been going on earlier. So that's the start of it. Now, then you have the Speaker delivering what was a pretty unusual ruling.
0: Yes, so on opposition days you have to think about the political choreography a little differently. So for the purposes of, of this debate, the SNP, the third party in the House... Has the initiative? It's its debate, its motion, and the government is, in effect, in the role of the main party of opposition to it. And Labour, for the purposes of this debate, is effectively the third party, normally occupied by the SNP.
1: So they could expect to be bystanders.
0: Yeah, and um, there were actually three amendments. There was the government amendment, there was a the Labour amendment, and there was a the Liberal Democrat amendment. So all the main parties put their their amendments down. It would have been unprecedented for the speaker not to have selected the amendment from the government to an opposition day motion, unless it was deemed disorderly. There was something sort of, you know, technically wrong with it. But there wasn't in this case. And having selected the government amendment, the question is then that the Speaker confronted was, was was he going to select one of the others? And normal practice is not to. We've seen opposition amendments selected when there hasn't been a government amendment... But when there's been a government amendment, the practice is you've got the main motion and the government amendment. You don't have a further opposition party amendment. But that's what the Speaker chose to do. He chose to select the second amendment from the Labour Party... And that meant, under the quirks of the standing orders, the Labour Amendment was voted on first.
1: Yeah, the, the choreography here, which I think Mr Speaker was expecting to happen, was that there would be a vote on the Labour Amendment and the government and the SNP would vote that amendment down. Then there would be a vote on the SNP's position yeah. and the government would vote that down and then there'd be a vote on the government amendment and that would be what the commons would pass that was the sort of way of things because the government has a majority in the commons so that was what he expected to happen and then the leader of the house penny morden pulled the rug out from under that in mid debate by announcing that the government would take no further part in the debate wouldn't move its amendment and chaos ensued
0: yeah, I mean, it's interesting, at the beginning of the, the debate, when he announced his decision on the selection, there was obviously a lot of furore, there were a lot of angry voices, there were calls on him to resign, they were saying, oh, the new Burko, he's making up the rules as he goes along. Then it quietened down, and the debate did start, and ran on for several hours, and it was a little bit heated in places. But then, towards the end of the debate... Yeah, Penny Mordaunt suddenly appears at the dispatch box to make a point of order to the, it was the deputy speaker by that time in, in the chair and suddenly announces that because of what has happened and the way in which it's been done, basically the government is withdrawing so it won't have uh, put its amendment uh, to the House to be voted on.
1: And the heavy politics of all this was that by putting a Labour proposition on the table to be voted on, the government got the Labour Party off rather a nasty hook because otherwise the only option for Labour MPs who wanted to show to their constituents that they supported an immediate ceasefire in Gaza would have been to vote for the SNP motion. And that was a motion that was a bit unpalatable to a lot of people on the Labour side because, for example, it talked about the collective punishment by Israel of the Palestinian people, which is essentially accusing... Israel of a crime under international law, which is somewhere Labour didn't really want to go. So there was a bit of difficulty there, and you might have seen a position, if the Labour amendment hadn't been available to vote on, where Labour MPs, including front benchers, including possibly even shadow cabinet members, might have felt they were forced by constituency pressures into defying the party whip. There'd have been resignations, there'd have been sackings, Keir Starmer would have been having to sort of reconstruct his shadow cabinet or his front bench yet again. Uh, The other parties gleefully have been able to point to Labour chaos. So there was a lot of wrong footing that Labour avoided... Because it was able to have a Labour proposition, which all its MPs could vote for, which did call for a ceasefire, but in language they could live with.
0: Yeah, and one of the suggestions, and I don't—we've no way of knowing whether it's true—is that actually one of the reasons that the Conservatives withdrew effectively from the process is because that there were possible concerns on their backbenchers that actually some of their MPs wanted to vote for the Labour motion. And that would have made life difficult for the Conservatives. Now, who knows? I mean, you know, there is a lot of sound and fury. There's a lot of allegations being made, a lot of rumours circulating.
1: A huge amount of contortion around this. And one of the irritating things about these debates is that people sort of blithely pronounce that these are non-binding votes. This is a vote of the House of Commons. It's non-binding only in the sense that there's no real way to enforce the consequences of it, but it's a vote of the House of Commons. They're actually expressing a distinct opinion in this, and they, in effect, by almost by default, ended up passing the Labour motion. But there's no way that the House of Commons can kind of enforce it and make the government call for a ceasefire in the terms there without threatening to know confidence of the government, at which point the Conservative majority in the Commons Chamber would say no to that.
0: Well, this was the additional bit of chaos then that followed Penny Mordaunt's statement because actually the voting process then degenerated into a chaotic mess. So William Wragg moved a motion for the House to sit in private, which is not unusual. That, you know Motions for that are sometimes moved during each session, but I think the last time it was actually passed and the House did sit in private was 2001. Mm. Um, it was defeated. I mean, it, But what it, was the point of doing it? Well, I think it was both partly a delaying tactic to get them past the final cut-off time for the vote, which is called in in procedural terms the moment of interruption. And I think some of them possibly thought that if they got the debate and they were still sort of voting on that, you know, the House should sit in private at 7 o'clock, then the votes on the Labour amendment wouldn't be permitted, they'd be cut off. But actually, that's not how it operates For years, it's been if there is in at the cut off time, you know, there's business to be considered, that vote can still take place, and indeed, what did, but actually, there wasn't a division on it because effectively, there's a a
1: distinction here between a vote which can be MPs shouting aye and nay very yeah. loudly and the person in the chair deciding on the basis of, effectively, a sort of clapometer noise level. Or a division, which is where they all file through and register votes in person in the voting lobbies on either side of the chamber. So you can have a vote that's not a division, and and that's what sort of yeah. occurred here. Uh, the story is, is, again, rather murky. Rosie Winterton, the deputy speaker who was in the chair at the time, basically took the voices the clapometer process i've just described and she didn't apparently hear anyone shouting no and didn't
0: quite understand which
1: which is a bit weird because a lot of people quite evidently were shouting no and what normally happens is if you've got lots of shouts i and lots of shouts at no the, division. The, 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 the next thing that happens is that the person in the chair calls division and they start voting one by one through the division lobbies and it didn't happen here and and this is just plain weird. I do not understand why it didn't happen, because quite evidently there were people shouting aye and no, to the extent that a division would be the logical next step, and it didn't take place. So the Labour motion was sort of waved through very controversially
0: and then you get the situation where shadow leader of the house Lucy Powell can stand up at the dispatch box and claim that the Labour amendment has been passed unanimously which then just led to another storm of 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 outrage on the conservative and SNP benches I mean I do wonder whether the deputy speaker in the chair whether she just lost track of things I mean she'd had a, a pretty awful hour
1: it'd been fairly torrid
0: Very torrid, and I do wonder what you know. A number of MPs have been critical of the fact that the Speaker had not come back into the chamber to preside over those final proceedings and left it to her.
1: Because it's normally the deal that the Speaker's there for the really big moments, will impose their authority, especially if things are getting a bit rowdy.
0: And by that time, you know, the leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn, had already been calling on the Speaker to come back. Where is the Speaker? You know, how can we drag him back?
1: He said. (laughs) and then he swiftly corrected himself, how can we bring the Speaker back into the chamber? But, I mean, the SNP were clearly absolutely furious with the Speaker for allowing Labour to muscle in on their debate.
0: Yeah, and I think that is a fair point. I think the SNP, you can criticise them for putting this very contentious proposition to the House, knowing full well how difficult it is for MPs of all parties in their constituencies across the country... But at the end of the day, something the SNP feel passionately about, it's their opportunity to have the House debate and vote on an issue that they want to put. Uh, And no other opportunity
1: had been provided by anybody else. I mean, Labour could have used one of their opposition days in the last few weeks and months to have a motion on the subject. The government could have put down a motion on the subject and it was left to the SNP to do it.
0: Yeah. And part of the issue here is that the way opposition days are structured... The, the rules the procedures would have been developed you know many years ago in a time when we had two party politics. We have, with the SNP having a considerable number of MPs in the House, they don't see the government necessarily all the time as the main party of opposition. For them, in Scotland, Labour is. And they're interested, you know, in a normal opposition day when it's, it's the government and Labour, it's about the Labour Party wanting to put a criticism to get the government on the hook on a point of, with a problem of policy or a weakness or putting their own policies in the a shop window. For the SNP, it's a different calculation.
1: Absolutely, not least because the main electoral threat to the SNP clearly comes from the Labour Party and you can tell that from the way that so many of the questions their leader deploys at Prime Minister's Question Time are actually aimed at Labour rather than at Rishi Sunak. Their fire is directed very much at Labour and this was a manoeuvre that could have got Labour into quite a lot of trouble. Yeah. And it didn't.
0: And... People will take a view on that depending upon whether they are inclined to be more supportive or less supportive of the SNP. But at the end of the day, procedurally, in terms of the House of Commons position, this was the SNP's moment, one of only three they get, as you say, in the parliamentary session. And in effect, as Stephen Flynn himself said, you know, what should have been an opposition day for the SNP became an opposition day for Labour by dint of the Speaker's selection.
1: And none of the smaller parties want that precedent to stick yep. because it could just as easily be done to the DUP or the Lib Dems or anybody else. Yep. This is a long-standing issue that the Commons, as you were saying earlier, finds it very difficult to process politics where there's more than two views.
0: We saw that during Brexit, didn't well, we the saw indicative that votes: during uh, Brexit,
1: yep. where they got into terrible tangles. But in the meantime, there's now quite a bill of indictment building up against Mr. Speaker Hoyle.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean he is in I think quite considerable difficulty. Um, I should say that for, for listeners benefit we are recording this in our studio in Soho at uh, sort of lunchtime on the Thursday so the day after the events we're talking about and the House of Commons is still sitting so we're keeping a wary eye on what's happening in the Commons chamber um, to see if there's any developments and by the time you get this in your feed over the coming days events might have moved on so we're very conscious of that but yeah, I think he's in difficulty. He said at the outset his rationale for selecting the amendment was that it's a highly sensitive subject. I think everybody can agree on that. Feelings are running high. He thought it was important to consider the widest possible range of options. Problem with that is that's not really the purposes of the opposition day debate necessarily. <laughs> but also then when he came back to the chamber at the end and, as you said earlier, you know, delivered this apology to the House, that things had not unfolded as he had expected or had wanted. He sort of indicated that a significant element of his reasoning was that he was concerned about the safety and security of MPs who were coming under immense pressure and facing threats. If they for- didn't
1: vote for a ceasefire, in yeah.
0: fact. Yeah, And I think, it's, you know, we can taking away from the sort of taking a step back from the sort of the heat of the moment, that's actually what worries me most about this whole debacle, Because if we're saying that threats, intimidation, threats of violence outside the House of Commons can influence openly the decisions of the chair and can lead to, I would say, a breach of both the spirit and the letter of the rules of the House of Commons, where does that then lead us? That is a very, very dangerous position. Yeah,
1: I, I, and that is going to be a huge concern for MPs going on now. I mean, is this going to happen with stuff around net zero? Is this yeah. going to happen with stuff around Ukraine? Who knows what the next controversy to engage those kind of threats and demonstrations outside MPs' houses and all the rest of and it? And we saw might that be. this
0: week with Tobias Oldwood. Yeah. know, his his family home in his constituency, protesters outside trying to to get onto the property and him having to have the police out and he couldn't return home with his family it's just not on
1: and no democracy can work very well under those kind of conditions and the speaker's apology i think was really quite a significant moment i can't recall ever having seen betty boothroyd ever apologize for anything the original never apologize never explained speaker michael martin got into difficulties but i don't think ever directly apologised for things like his handling of the MP's expenses scandal which ultimately cost him his job John Berker never apologised for anything either no quite the reverse, this is the first time I've ever seen a Speaker come to the House and say, I made a ruling and it didn't work the way I thought it was and I'm sorry for that, which to paraphrase is pretty much what Lindsay Hoyle said. Now is that a serious moment of weakness? There is quite a lot of pressure building up around Mr Speaker now. There is an early day motion calling for him to resign tabled by William Rank who's the chair of the public administration committee and who's also a member of the 1922 committee conservative backbench executive who's quite a significant figure in the commons and that's now attracted somewhere approaching 60 as we're talking anyway, uh, something approaching 60 signatures, that's a lot. And when you notice that some of those signatures are from people like Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, probably the single most influential Conservative outside the Cabinet, and probably more influential than quite a number of Conservatives (laughs) inside the Cabinet come to that, you're beginning to sense real trouble. The SNP do not appear to have been soothed down by any apologies Lindsay Hoyle may have offered them in meetings after that debate. So there's quite a large section of the Commons now basically suggesting that he ought to go. Now, that's not an easy thing for a Speaker to live with. They've got to be a neutral umpire. They've got to be able to chair without fear or favour. And I really do wonder whether, A, Lindsay Hall can survive with that, and, B, how effectively he can chair if he's constantly looking over his shoulder Mm. at hostile actors. Yeah.
0: I mean, it is interesting, the sort of the array of names. I mean, people like Geoffrey Clifton Brown, deputy chair, effectively, the Public Accounts Committee, Jesse Norman... In the SNP, people like Joanna Cherry, you know, former Shadow Leader of the House, Pete Mm, Wishart.
1: These are not headbangers. No,
0: so he has got serious difficulty. He has said at the end of his apology, "I want to meet with all the key players." I think what's difficult to understand about this is how else did he think it was going to play out? I mean, did he just sort of think that the SNP would accept the fact that he'd chosen this amendment and and just move on and get on with the debate? Um, The other thing that's come out of this is for the first time there has been a letter published by the clerk of the mm. house setting out that in his view as the chief sort of constitutional advisor to the speaker he effectively thinks the speaker um you know it was within his rights to do what he did he had that discretion but he thinks that he was effectively breaching precedent and Consequently, he's published this letter, and this letter is a new feature. Yeah,
1: it, and this is one of the great ironies of this. This was a process that, that Sir Lindsay Hoyle himself set up yeah. when he became Speaker, and it was intended as a, as a way of breaking with what a lot of MPs thought was the way John Burko made up the rules as he went along. If the clerk wasn't happy with something that the Speaker was doing, the clerk could publish a letter explaining that. I don't imagine that Lindsay Hall thought for a moment that that mechanism would be invoked against him, but now it has, it has been. been.
0: And I actually think that might be the thing that possibly concerns him most about all of this, because he set himself up as a candidate for Speaker as sort of the anti yeah. the the person who would not be the erratic breaching conventions, breaching the, the standing orders, that he would be caused by partisan. I mean, John Burko I don't think ever was quite the partisan figure that some of the Brexiteers liked to, to, to depict him as at the end of the, the Brexit process. But he was seen at the end as partisan. And what... Lindsay hoyle wanted to be was the alternative to that
1: traditional sort of speaker classique, if you like
0: (laughs) yeah and and i think that could weigh heavily Mm. you know he will be i think really discomforted by the idea that there are now quite a number of mps who sort of see him in that light
1: and one of the things to to note here is is the john burko legacy here We talk about John Burko being seen as anti-Brexit and I think it's probably fair to say that in the end he probably was but the whole process of Brexit in Parliament arguably began with John Burko in 2013 allowing an extra amendment to go down, this time in a Queen's speech debate, from Brexiteer Conservative backbenchers calling for a referendum and that almost set the ball rolling and ended up culminating in the vast pressure on David Cameron to concede a Brexit referendum and the rest is history. And John, what John Burke was doing there was trying to make sure that a viewpoint that had a significant block of support in the Commons could be aired. So he broke with precedent. He clearly stretched the rules perhaps beyond their actual meaning to allow the Brexiteers to put down that motion. And that is... In a way not dissimilar to what Lindsay Hoyle yeah, ended up absolutely. doing. He said, Here's a viewpoint that needs to be aired. The context in which he did it was a bit different, but all the same. He was trying to kind of make room for more than two viewpoints. Mm-hmm.
0: But this is, I think, the then his problem, because the clerk had clearly warned him that this outcome, i.e., that there might not be a vote on the SNP motion was a possibility.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I
0: think, his difficulty. And then it's, it's it, the, the other issue for him is that, and this is one of the reasons why you've got so many Conservative and SNP members signing this early-day motion of expressing no confidence in him, is that there are all these rumours circulating. Who knows whether there is any truth in them at all or, you know, sliver of truth, but rumours circulating that he came under immense pressure from the you know leader of the opposition from Keir Starmer from his office from the labor whips to choose this amendment select this amendment because of the pressure that labor was under and the suggestion is that it was intimated that if he didn't he couldn't rely on their support for re-election in the next Parliament after the general election. Now, that sort of has a slight mafia quality
1: to uh, it. I, I, I can I, hardly
0: I'm... imagine Keir Stormer going in and threatening in those words. But I, I,
1: I suspect <laughs> that what didn't happen here was that someone... Came in and did a sort of comedy long, yeah. London gangster routine, things get broken, you know, speakerships <laughs> get ended. Wouldn't that be a pity? Now, I'm sure it didn't happen like that, but what I suspect Lindsay Hoyle is capable of doing is reading the rooms and thinking there's going to be, potentially, after the next election, a very large Labour majority. What if they don't want me? Because the first act of a new Parliament, always remember, is to elect its yeah. Speaker. And normally, if there's a sitting Speaker, they're re-elected pretty much on the nod, but it doesn't have to happen that way. There's a window there where you can change the speaker right at the beginning of a parliament and that could well have happened
0: and we know that there is a history, he is a former Labour MP, that's the benches that he came from, but that there are some Labour MPs in the Parliamentary Labour Party who have been unhappy with him. Mm. We've seen that ourselves at meetings in, in, in over the recent months where, you know, certain Labour MPs have expressed a view that's quite critical. I mean, I think on a couple of occasions you and I have raised our eyebrows, <laughs> what's that about? We know that, you know, Labour MPs were unhappy with some of the decisions he made during the virtual parliament and during Covid that he didn't stand up to the government enough. So, you know, we know that there's a degree of unhappiness there. And as you say, he's an astute politician. He's been around a long time. I don't think he needs anybody to go in and tell him.
1: Um, And It wouldn't
0: have happened that way. But that is, you know, now part of the discussion that's happening in the tea rooms. And
1: think about the implications of that, though. Once you get to the point where a speaker is is facing direct threats, they do as you're told or you're out... You've broken the speakership. Yeah. I mean, that would be a huge constitutional blow. If it was ever as crude and vicious as that, that would be... I mean, all speakers have had to be conscious of the political context in which they operate. Always. It's a political post. Most procedural decisions at this level are ultimately political Political, decisions as well as an interpretation of the rule book. Sometimes you get speakers who have to, as it were, decide what they think works politically and then find a way to rationalise it afterwards through the rules and parliamentary procedures are a living thing it's it's not tablets of stone brought down from Mount Sinai in the mists of time it is something that has to be interpreted to give the house the opportunity to come to the decision it wants to come to so that's why you have a speaker rather than simply a group of clerks interpreting the rule book so that you can have that political flexibility to do the right thing more or less regardless of what the rules say. Now, the question here is whether Lindsay Hoyle did the right thing and whether he might yet pay a considerable price for it. I mean, if there was a serious attempt to remove him, how would it work, Ruth?
0: Well, I assume that if the numbers on the early day motion increase, I mean, there's no automatic right to debating time for an early day motion, But if the numbers were to keep increasing, I assume that the, the government is going to come under pressure to schedule a debate. And I think therefore a lot is going to come down to the position of, of the prime minister, the position of the leader of the House of Commons, the chief whip. What view do they take of this? I was very struck that after Lindsay Hoyle's apology, Penny Mordaunt's words were quite emollient, quite gracious in response. She seems to be trying to play it down a little bit and sort of, re- you know, reduce the temperature of things and indicating that he still has her confidence but she will also have to take account of the 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 views of conservative backbenchers. but also as she made clear in the debate yesterday as leader of the house she's more than just a government minister she's also the representative for the house she has to take account of the views of of the smaller parties as well and she made clear that she was concerned that the the position that the SNP had been put in
1: This is where the the kind of good chap and chap-esque theory of government comes into play here. People are are expected to kind of do the right thing, but also have got one eye on political expediency. So how it plays out is, is very hard to see at this point. I can remember the scenes... all those years ago now when uh, Michael Martin was under immense pressure over his handling of the expenses scandal and an early day motion had gone down against him calling for him to depart and there were increasing calls for it to be debated and there was this awful moment when he was being questioned by Douglas Carswell the Conservative backbencher at the time about when can we have this debate and he sort of retreated in confusion because this kind of direct challenge to a speaker is practically unheard of, and the other thing to say about this is the, the numbers are already quite significant on well, this then, early day motion.
0: And more than for Michael Martin's.
1: More than uh, for case. Michael Martin, certainly. And also remember, at the height of the controversy around John Burko, Conservative backbencher and former minister called James Duddridge put down an early day motion saying that John Burko should go. Dudders' motion never required more than five signatures. Yeah. This, this one's you know, 60-ish now yeah. and counting. So this is a very, very significant storm cloud on Lindsay Hall's horizon.
0: So I think a lot depends upon the outcome of the discussions that he has with the key players. I think a lot depends upon the position that Penny Mordant and Stephen Flynn take. He has indicated that he wants the Procedure Committee to look at the processes and procedures, the standing orders governing opposition day debates – I do wonder whether he discussed it with the chair of the committee <laughs> beforehand or he's just landed her another inquiry. I, I think
1: he's just landed this <laughs> yeah, in, in Karen, Karen Bradley's lap. Yeah. I, I suspect. But what I also suspect in this is that even if the Procedure Committee started looking at this now, they wouldn't no. probably have managed to cook up a decent conclusion by the next election. So it's, it kicks that into touch. But
0: also several members of the Procedure Committee have signed this early day motion as well. So uh-huh. that, that is a little problematic. But I do wonder if there's a possible solution... If he's able to sort of get things back on track through these discussions, that the, there could be a censure motion. Mm. So they censure him for that decision. They make clear in the motion that they do not want that precedent to stand and the normal previous practices should be observed instead. I mean, there are precedents for that.
1: be pretty bruising, but I suppose it falls short of being actually defenestrated. So. Yes,
0: and, and I think therefore a part of it will also come down to what he thinks and feels after these discussions. Is he comfortable with thinking that he can carry on, knowing as he looks across the chamber that at least 60, possibly more, of the MPs do not consider him a fair and independent impartial chair? That is going to be a very personal decision, and he may decide to go before he's pushed. He may come under pressure to go before he's pushed, or there may be this third way of a sort of a censure motion which is critical but which draws a line under it.
1: A Lancashire MP neighbour of Lindsay Hoyles once said to me that the political byways of Lancashire are littered with the bodies of people who've underestimated Lindsay Hoyle. Yeah. Apparently he was out in the tea rooms this morning, basically trying to schmooze MPs and rebuild a bit of confidence. So he's already out there on manoeuvres. He will know he's in trouble. He's got all the resources and patronage and powers of his office to use to bolster his position. So I don't think anyone should write off Sir Lindsay yet, because he is a formidable street fighter when he needs to be.
0: Yep. So, I mean, where do we think this takes us in terms of the wider sort of political ramifications?
1: Labour will probably feel most pleased, even if it was a pretty bruising experience for them. But I suppose perhaps they might rue the day that they won like this.
0: Yeah. I mean, the precedent has been set. We'll have to see what the procedure committee comes up with. But you know, nonetheless, the precedent is set and Labour may come to rue the day when it is in government that something could be used in a you know, similar way in the future and put them in, in difficulties if you, you know the speakers can breach both the spirit and the words of the, the standing orders, as it were.
1: Yeah. So time for perhaps a more thoroughgoing review of the rules of debate. To, yeah. Just to accommodate the idea that there may be more than two viewpoints on a given issue.
0: Yeah, and also to reflect the fact that politics has changed. Politics today and the, the makeup of the composition of the House of Commons chamber is not the same as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, and what's interesting is MPs take very little interest, actually, until a row breaks out in the way the House works, in the rules of, of procedure. Unusually, there's no standing body, standing committee, that looks at and reviews the rules on a regular basis. The standing orders have only ever been reviewed six times since the Second World War as a collective body of rules. You know, We get all sorts of ad hoc changes to them brought forward by the government to address certain things, but they don't ever really look at them as a collective group of 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 mm. rules.
1: So what you've got is kind of decaying layers of precedent piled one on top of the other sort of gradually rotting into one another.
0: And we've seen through Brexit, we've seen through Covid, we've seen that this week that the understandings that members have about how these rules should operate don't necessarily hold in the same way that they used to. And given that, they need to look at, reflect on, review and possibly make recommendations about changing them so that there is a settled understanding and that protects members and parties, but it also protects the speaker.
1: But of course, the other thing is, what do the public outside think of the ludicrous sort of orgy of party games being played around an issue like this?
0: Yeah, that is the problem. Within the bubble of Westminster... Those of us who deal with the processes and procedures, we kind of understand why they end up in this position, as we've explained. But to the watching public, it is just utterly dreadful. It's an embarrassment. Westminster at its worst, really. What the public see is one of the great issues, a really difficult issue, a contentious issue, but an issue when people's lives are at stake, being treated like a political football.
1: And also an issue where the Differences between the parties are not so vast that they couldn't have been bridged. Yeah. As well. And on that, Ruth, perhaps it's time to take a break.
0: If you're enjoying the pod and think like Mark and I do, that Parliament matters, why not join the Hansard Society? This year we celebrate our 80th anniversary, and throughout the year we'll have a number of special events to mark this important milestone. For as little as a cup of coffee each month, you can join us and follow in the footsteps of our first members, Winston Churchill and Clement Attlee. And if you're enjoying the issues that we're talking about on the pod, you'll also be getting our special members-only Dispatch Box newsletter each week, where we bring together the best news and stories about parliaments here in the UK and around the world. You can join by going to handsarsociety.org.uk slash membership.
1: And We're back again, and, and Ruth, rather overshadowed by the, the pyrotechnics later on, but I just want to point to something that happened at Prime Minister's question time, which was when Sir Keir Starmer started asking very detailed, very forensic questions about the government's handling of the Post Office Horizon scandal. Essentially, when did they know that there was a problem with the horizon system, which they now seem to think was actually 2015, 2016. So with the whole scandal still rolling on for some years after that. And also the truth of this allegation by the former chair of the post office that he had been told to slow things down because the government didn't want to take on too many huge spending commitments and the numbers being paid out in compensation to the victims of Post Office Horizon are actually big enough that they start causing problems for government spending. Had he been told to drag his feet on that to avoid problems before the general election? Keir Starmer directly asked Rishi Sunak whether or not he was prepared to back his business secretary, who'd said flatly that that was a lie and didn't get a direct answer. And the the reason I raise all this is not so much to refight the exchanges, but just to note that what's happened here is that Keir Starmer has gone into... Forensic prosecutor mold in a way last seen when he was chasing Boris Johnson about mm. Partygate, he started asking very, very detailed questions. And this is no SW1 bubble scandal, this is something the general public have noticed. If there's nothing there, if those allegations can't be proven or are, or in fact, actively disproven, well, he was asking reasonable questions. If there is something there, That's electoral kryptonite. That's devastating for the government. So I think that is very much one to watch. And uh, in particular, we'll be watching out for the uh, appearance of some of the key players in this before the business select committee next week. Because uh, those questions have to be asked and answered pretty quickly, I think. Otherwise, there's going to be a very large cloud hovering over the government for quite a while to come.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Kemi Badenoch was the the sort of the core focus, both of prime minister's questions and the points of order after PMQs. It was very noticeable that a number of Labour MPs, a number of select committee chair, the business select committee chair, were honing in on what had Kemi Badenoch said, what had she done and trying to pin down and um, it wasn't just the post office it was also the negotiations with Canada over a, a sort of trade deal and the suggestion that you know she had perhaps not been entirely truthful about the status of those negotiations and the Canadian High Commissioner has written to the Business Committee to set out his understanding of what the position is which doesn't entirely gel with what the Secretary of State has said so clearly honing in on some of these issues. Trying to get to the detail and figure out whether there is something there. If she's, you know, entirely accurate in her statements to the Commons and there's nothing to see there, she'll be fine. But if there is any, you know, evidence comes to light that she has perhaps not been entirely open and honest with the the House, I think she'll be in serious trouble. And clearly, from Labour's perspective, looking ahead, they may be thinking about this is somebody who is being positioned as a potential future leader. ...if the Conservatives lose after the next election... ...so damaging her at this stage... Would be quite useful politically for them.
1: There is actually a little basket of ticking scandals or time bombs floating around that the government's got to. it's got to work its way through at the moment. There's this business about the uh, unpublished reports of the borders inspector. He was sacked for talking about some of the problems with uh, the leakage as it were and the UK's borders. That's a, a difficult issue for the government since immigration and controlling immigration is such a big part of of their electoral offer. And there's also the evidence that the uh, Veterans Minister, Johnny Mercer, former army officer, has been giving to an inquiry looking at whether there were illegal killings in Afghanistan by members of the SAS, where he's actually refused to give names that have been asked for by the head of that inquiry. And for a serving minister not to fully cooperate with an inquiry is quite a big deal so there's some very significant action just going on at the moment that isn't getting vast attention but which could suddenly erupt into the light later on.
0: Yeah I mean the the statement made by the chair of this inquiry into allegations of murder of why special forces in Afghanistan were pretty tough. I mean, he said Johnny Mercer's decision to refuse to answer legitimate questions at a public inquiry was disappointing, surprising and completely unacceptable. And then he talked about he'd got As chair of the Inquiry, he'd got significant powers under the Inquiries Act. He'd prefer not to use them, but he warned Johnny Mercer that he would. And I think the question there is, what would that imply, and how quickly might those powers be applied, and what hot water is that potentially going to land Johnny Mercer in?
1: Particularly as he's a Minister of the Crown, a serving minister in the Government, in the Cabinet Office at the moment. So watch that space.
0: Yeah. So, shall we talk about Citizens' Assemblies, Mark? Oh, why not?
1: (laughs) Everybody's favourite subject.
0: Yeah, well, apparently Sue Gray's favourite subject. So, Sue Gray, the former civil servant, now Chief of Staff to uh, to Keir Starmer, she's been quoted in a new biography of the Labour leader that's um, due out soon by Tom Baldwin. And in it, apparently, she's championing Citizens' Assemblies as a way to resolve contentious issues. And she talks about them as apparently transformational in Ireland, where they have been used quite extensively to build consensus for constitutional change. And
1: notably to allow abortion
0: in Ireland. And uh, as a result of this, citizens' assemblies are sort of on the agenda. And there's been a lot of discussion around them this week about whether they are... uh, A good thing or a bad thing, you know, isn't Parliament the Citizens' Assembly? Where does this all fit in? Is this to replace Parliament? Is it, you know, a technocrat solution?
1: Well, perhaps we should nail down what exactly a Citizens' Assembly is to start with. My understanding, and you may know better, is that essentially what you do is you've got an issue that you want to resolve. Maybe politics is a bit deadlocked around it. So go forth and get a representative panel of citizens. You'd usually get sort of a polling company or something to Mm -hmm. find a representative panel of citizens who could then spend a period of time going through the issue and come up with sort of non-political, non-party deadlocked answers to whatever the issue was. So try and find a way to kind of lead the party through. This is what the Unbiased Citizens Panel has decided would be a good idea. Why don't new political parties follow their advice?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's different ways of doing it in all sorts of different models that have been deployed in this country and, and around the world. But yeah, essentially that is you, you bring together a representative body of citizens, you put over an extended period of time, whether that's weekends, whether that's, you know, multiple weekends over the course of a year, whether that's over multiple, multiple years, and you put them in a room together to discuss and debate the issues, and you put in front of them experts who can provide arguments, evidence to help them understand the issues that they can then debate and discuss and ask questions about. And the idea is that they become more informed about the complexity of the policy, the nuances, and that they can discuss and debate the trade-offs that are involved in the development of public policy and emerge with a consensus position. And that can then inform public policy. Now, in Ireland, what they did, interestingly, was before they had the formal citizens assembly, they actually had a constitutional convention. And that was composed of both citizens and members of the Doyle. So two thirds of it were citizens, a third of it were, were MPs who were selected by their parties. And that was a way of sort of bringing together the the sort of the deliberative elements and the representative elements to debate and these matters and then what followed subsequently was this citizens' assembly that looked at a range of issues including uh you know abortion it's looked at voting rights and and so on. It has had some successes in in Ireland not everything's been agreed upon, not everything's been taken forward by the the political leadership but it has helped unlock some really difficult issues like abortion.
1: So so what might it be applied to here? I mean what what are the difficult issues which Sue Gray might wish to see well, a citizens assembly un, unleashed on in yeah, the UK?
0: Well, we'll have to see. I mean one argument is you could look at it constitutionally, you could look at something like House of Lords reform, which the parliamentarians at Westminster have not been able to sort of reach a consensus on what the alternative to the House of Lords might look like you could look at social issues I guess as things like assisted dying or you could look at forward-looking policy issues you know um, things like gene editing the use of artificial intelligence regulating social media for children and, and so on so those kinds of issues but at the end of the day it is not an alternative to Parliament.
1: Well, it, it sounds awfully sometimes like politicians outsourcing difficult decisions and, and hoping someone gets them off a hook.
0: Yeah, that, that's the critique and that I think is, is the worry. And some people see it you know, as a sort of technocrat solution. I think there are all sorts of concerns and issues about how do you select this independent group? Who's deciding? Who's funding it? Who are the evidence givers that appear well, before it? Because they have massive influence over the, the yeah. process. Because
1: Garbage in, garbage out if you have the wrong set of people informing the decisions to start with the the citizens jury could go anywhere
0: but who decides who the right people are um you know and you know what does a balanced panel of people to give evidence look like so there's there's a lot of complexities around it and and to do it well i have to say it is not a cheap way of doing consultation the house of commons actually had a, a select committee do a citizens assembly on climate change and they did it in, in partnership with the other organisations, they got external funding as well as putting their own money in, but it was a significant sum of money. I mean, I think that you were sort of heading up to the sort of half a million pounds mark. It was a very big exercise and you have to say, what have the results been? Ultimately, I think they can be a great contribution to a consultation process. They could possibly maybe be inserted into the legislative process in terms of pre-legislative well, that, that's scrutiny. That's
1: what I was thinking about this, that maybe the place for this is in shaping the early stages of some new policy or some new laws. So you have a pre ledge scrutiny process, maybe, and you start with the Citizens' Assembly saying, this is what we think should be done about this very complicated, knotty and possibly not very party political problem.
0: Yeah. But in terms of the the discussion around Sue Gray's positioning of this in this book, the suggestion is that this was a way of bypassing Whitehall and Whitehall's desire to sort of hang on to power. I mean, fundamentally, yes, you can do this, but ultimately you've still got to have the formal policy processes of Whitehall and Westminster in place and we know that those have not been operating as well as they they have uh, in, in the past. They need reform and improvement and the question I think therefore is how do they dovetail with all of that? But ultimately parliamentarians are still going to be the ones that have to
1: legislate. Indeed and maybe that's a good point for us to stop with this edition. We'll be back next week to Do a health check on Lindsay Hall's prospects of speaker and doubtless much, much more. And in the meantime, look out for a special edition of this podcast. We're going to be talking to one of the legends of political broadcasting in this country, Rob Burley, who's worked with Jeremy Paxman, with Andrew Marr, with Jonathan Dimbleby, with Emily Maitlis, all the great interviewers, about the importance of the political interview in getting the truth out of politicians. He says it's a vital part of political scrutiny, gives the voters a real chance to see inside their heads, of our rulers.
0: It's a great interview, one to look forward to and uh, see you next week. See you then. Well that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands.
1: And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost.
0: And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm.
1: What do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in by carrier pigeon. (laughs)
0: Well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMUQ.
1: We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament.
0: And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard Society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit Hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM or find us on social media at Hansard Society.